There has to be some common sense. Yes, sir. They have the car stopped in town and Michael We still don't know who pulled the trigger. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Police Off the Cuff Real Crime Stories. I'm your host, Bill Cannon. I'm a retired 27-year veteran of the NYPD. I retired as a sergeant. With me today, usually straight out of Brooklyn, but today he's straight out of Florida. He's on vacation. My co-host, retired NYPD detective, Phil Grimaldi. How are you doing today, Phil? I'm doing pretty good, Billy. Listen, I know that a dear friend of yours... um, just passed away. And I want to give you a, a couple of minutes just to, uh, you know, read a tribute and just reach out to him, his family and people that loved them. Uh, you got the, you got the whole screen. Thank you, Billy. Yeah. Uh, on Monday, I'm down here in Florida. I'm in uh, Deerfield beach and, uh, we came down with a bunch of family for, uh, Easter, Easter week. And, um, on Monday afternoon, a friend of mine who had been very sick with, uh, 9-11 related cancer passed away. Uh, Joe Ponzi. Joe Ponzi was just uh, one hell of a human being. Um, he was a bureau chief in the Brooklyn DA's office. He started out in the late 70s as an investigator, became a polygraph expert, and then uh, moved up the ranks and became the chief investigator for the Brooklyn DA's office. I think his career spanned about 37 years. Um, I'm actually distantly related to Joe through marriage. My uh, my uncle through marriage is uh, his mom's first cousin. And uh, I don't want to make uh, my friendship with Joe about the job. It really was about the job. That's how I actually met him. Uh, but I was uh, very fond of Joe because of his stature as a, a wonderful, wonderful human being. My point is that I didn't like him because he was a uh, an accomplished a bureau chief in the DA's office. I liked him because he was a good person. He was a good human being. Um, when I got the word, uh, there were family around me and they expressed condolences and they kept saying to me, sorry for your loss, sorry for your loss. But I said, uh, don't be sorry for me. Be sorry for the human race. Be sorry for the world because they lost uh, a really, really good human being, a great guy, Joe Ponzi. My deepest condolences to his family. His friends, I've had an outpouring of uh, calls over the last couple of days. Everybody's just devastated by the news. Um, and I'm, I know, Billy, you offered to do a tribute show for him, and we're going to have some of uh, his closest friends and colleagues. Uh, when we do do that, we'll probably do it, I guess, sometime in the near future. But, uh, Joe, rest in peace. God bless your family. Uh, he was just such a hell of a family man. He has uh, three beautiful daughters, and I think he has about eight or nine grandchildren. And he's going to be sorely missed. Joe, we love you. God bless and uh, condolences to your family. You know, folks, also, uh, he was one of the authors of uh, the book Friends of the Family with Tommy Dade. So he was big on the mafia cops case. I mean, not that, but that's just part of his legacy. And I know that our very good friend, uh, Tommy Dades, is very um, upset about this also. And uh, Tommy Dades, uh, offer all condolences to you and the loss of your friend. Absolutely. Today, we're going to get to a, a case that at first I wasn't going to cover it, but uh, Osaloya Gal, a, a mom, a 51-year-old mom from Forest Hills, which is a very affluent neighborhood in Queens, she was murdered on Saturday morning. And 
it's sort of taken some twists and turns. Initially, in homicide investigation, you always look to the people closest to the to the deceased. And right away, of course, the police did, and they looked at the 13-year-old son who had been home, and they brought him, actually brought him into the precinct in handcuffs, and he was cleared. And then the father and the other son uh, were away looking at colleges on the West Coast. So now they have to start looking at other people. I'm going to give you a little bit of um, uh, background on the case in a, little, a short news report, and we're going to play this on the screen, and you'll get an idea of, of what actually occurred. Uh, in this case. On its hands, involving the brutal death of a mother from a quiet section of Queens. Orsha Yagal was killed over the weekend. Police say she was stabbed dozens of times. Her body later found on the side of a road in a duffel bag in a neighborhood lined with Tudor-style homes and now grieving families. We're closer to home is the part that is really shocking. As investigators try and track down Gall's killer, this home surveillance video, obtained by our New York station WNBC, may show the person responsible, according to their police sources. A jogger discovered that duffel early morning and called 911. Authorities then following a trail of blood to Gall's home about a half mile away. It's very frightening and concerning. Detectives are working to construct a timeline of Gall's final hours with police sources telling WNBC the suspect sent her husband a threatening message from her cell phone Saturday morning. Authorities have reportedly identified a person of interest. Multiple law enforcement sources telling WNBC it's a man who knew Gall and had access to her home. On social media, the pain palpable. One person writing on her Facebook page, I will always remember how passionate you were about your boys and their education. Another commenting, we were just on the phone together just days ago speaking about colleges. My heart is broken. Gal's husband and oldest son were visiting colleges on the West Coast, according to police sources, who believe their 13-year-old son may have been home when she was killed. The shocking murder coming as New York City faces an uptick in overall crime, more than 43% year over year. You know, I say over and over again, there are many rivers that feed uh, the sea of violence. Uh, this is a national issue. In Queens, the tragedy leaving this residential community stunned. It's heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. And by the day, it gets worse. And the medical examiner's office confirming Gall's death has been classified a homicide because of the violent nature of her death. And obviously, guys, a lot of questions to be answered here. Yeah, yeah sad and scary story. All right, Sam, thank you for that. Just to correct the news report, it wasn't classified as a homicide because of the violent nature of it, because it's clear that uh, she was stabbed to death. She was stabbed between 58 and 60 times. What's also, to us in the homicide profession, know that that means, usually, well, we know, Phil, when a knife is used, that also means it's a very personal type of thing. The killer is known to her. There's no doubt in my mind he's known to her. And the fact that she's stabbed 58 to 60 times, that this is really someone that was perceived was done wrong. Could this have been, they're talking about a person of interest, could this have been an affair that she walked away from, that she broke off, and it caused this type of rage? Something else, when I saw that person uh, in the video wheeling that duffel bag down the street, that may not mean anything. Uh, to a lot of people seeing that, but to the to people that know the perpetrator, 
the way he moves, his gait may mean everything. They could say, that's so-and-so. That's the way he walks. That's the way he moves. Someone's gait is very identifiable. So that video says more than it to, you know, to investigators and to people that know who the perpetrator is than it will just to the average person. Because obviously there's no face identified in that. But the whole overall body and the way he moves can can tell a lot. Absolutely, Billy. I think uh, in this particular case, obviously extremely, extremely violent. Like you said, rage. Uh, when we see a stabbing where there's that many multiple stab wounds, that's an indication of extreme rage. Um, the uh, reports that I read say that there were defensive wounds on her hands as well. So there was obviously some type of a... Uh, a struggle to defend herself. There's defensive wounds on her hands. Um, and then uh, you have a clear video of a person pulling that duffel, duffel bag down the block. Obviously, uh, you can't see the person's face, but that right there, we have the, we have the killer. I think it's almost a 100% gimme that that is the killer of this young lady. Um, he's pulling the, the bag down the block. The blood trail goes right back to a house. And I'm sure that there's going to be uh, extensive canvases for other video along that route to see, you know, between the location where the body was found in the house to see if there's going to be uh, other surveillance video that will uh, have a clearer picture of the perpetrator. And again, like you said, um, I was involved in a homicide case about five or six years ago where uh, there was video of a person walking and the person's uh, close relative was brought in and shown that video. And they said, yes, that's my husband. So uh, you know, there's ways of identifying a person, even like you said, by the way they walked, how they walked. It looked like that person, I think it looked like he had some type of a backpack on as well. And uh, this is a very personal close-up murder, as uh, the medical examiner stated, uh, sharp force uh, uh, injury to the neck. So the, it appears that the the, uh, the injuries that were caused, the stab, stabbing, 58, 60 stabs, uh, it, it seems like the ones to the neck are what caused the death of the person. So again, very personal. And again, where where the location of the stab wounds on the body are are indicative of certain factors with regard to violence and uh, the person that may have uh, have stabbed this woman. So I, again, I don't think it's a stranger, just uh, you know, a victim of uh, opportunity. This seems very focused on this woman. One hundred percent. You know, folks, I just want to say. The way homicide investigation is is conducted is when you first start the investigation, a lot of things have to be eliminated and a lot of things have to be included. The first thing, of course, they did was eliminate the son, the 13-year-old son. They brought him in there because usually it's someone very, very close to the deceased, known to. So they eliminated the son. Right away, they eliminated the father and the other son that were on the West Coast. Now, they got to do what's called a victimology. And what a victimology is, is the study of the victim. And we got to look into the victim's background. Sometimes they call it victim backgrounding. We got to look into the victim's backgrounding. And one of the things you're going to hear about, and we'll talk about it later on also, is a timeline. A timeline is so, so important. And one of the most important things is where was the victim prior to this occurrence? Where did she go? I believe earlier in the night, she had gone to Lincoln Center to see a show. And then later on in the night, actually 40 minutes before she went home, she was at a local bar drinking by herself. Now, so you may say, 
Was she sitting in that bar waiting for someone? Was she going to meet the potential killer that later on killed her that night? Or or did did that have nothing to do with it? Another thing we're going to find is that a treasure trove of information, of course, is her cell phone, right? It's going to track where she is. There's going to be incoming, outgoing texts, incoming, outgoing emails. All of that information is so, so important in a homicide investigation. The other things that investigators surmise is that there was no forced entry into this house. So now, you again, as Phil and I say all the time, we hate the term person of interest. We hate that term. Mm. They've identified a person of interest. We like that. We like the term suspect. All right. And even if he turns out not to be a suspect, I think he's the suspect. All right. Person of interest to me, just an, it's an it's an annoying term. Anyway, someone got into that house without there was no forced entry. So someone knew where the key was, or they got in some other way through a window. But there's no forced entry. Also, an indicator that she may have known her killer. And then we talk about the violent nature of this, the 58 to 60 stab wounds. The other thing is in most stabbing incidents, the perpetrator cuts himself. So there very well could be the perpetrator's blood commingled with the decedent's blood in the crime scene. Very, very important. And we in New York are so, so... um, you know, we 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 expect an arrest the next day. You know, we're impatient. Let me put it that way. We're impatient with our police. However, our police, and you've heard Phil and I say this a million times, they need to cross their T's and dot their I's, and they need to do everything correctly. All right. The next thing I would lo- I would want to do when we bring in this person of interest who they describe, who I describe as a suspect, and we we attempt to interview him, I would also like to know where his cell phone is. And then if he really is a heavy-duty suspect, we want to take a very, very deep dive into this guy. And again, we talked about victimology. I'm going to talk about perpology. We're going to do a backgrounding, a study of this suspect. And that's where we get a great deal of information, all right? Again, we have that video of someone wheeling that duffel bag up the street. Does he fit the description of that person? That person looks sort of small to me. You know, how is his gait? Does his gait fit the way that that person moved? So all of these things are a treasure trove. I want to, I want to see his car. I want to look at his easy pass. You know, I want to talk to all his friends. Where was he? Who does he work with? Does he have an alibi? Where was he at that time? You know, so all of these things, there is so much information and we have it way out here. We want to bring it in here. We want to bring it closer and closer and closer to you get all the evidence and boom, you got him. All right. So that's how we're looking at. uh, And look, we need to have patience with our police. We need to have patience with our investigators, the news, the people in the neighborhood. I don't think this guy is a threat to the people in the neighborhood. I think this was a very specific, specific murder of a known two. I don't think this is someone burglarizing homes and just happened upon her. I think if that was the case, he wouldn't have stabbed her 60 times. Bill. Yeah, this is not a serial killer or anything like that. This is either someone that was known to her or someone that was given the key to the house or, or given access to the home uh, so that way they could get in, they can do uh, what they what the person did. Now, again, in the home, I would like to know 
The son apparently was home, the 13-year-old son. They took him out of the house in handcuffs. It sounds to me like they believe strongly that this murder took place in that home. So again, if he's home and this murder takes place, how could he not have heard it? He could have been sleeping, could have been another area of the home. So that is possible. It sounds like they've cleared him as a suspect. They did put him in handcuffs, however, when they removed him. So they were probably looking at him as possibly being a suspect right away because of the fact it sounds like the murder took place inside the home. Now, again, Billy, you brought up some really good points in, in the, the, the the few statements that you just made. Um, again, I would want to look under her fingernails to see if there's any DNA. Uh, she could have scratched a guy. Uh, during the, the struggle, the, the 58, 60 stab wounds, he may have cut himself. We're going to be looking for blood other than her blood at the crime scene. Um, you know, that... Uh, uh, piece of luggage that uh, he was rolling down the block. If he cut his hand, there could be his blood on that luggage. Those are all going to be very, very important uh, crime scene uh, uh, recovery of evidence locations that I, I would definitely want to uh, be on top of that. Again, once we zero in on the suspect, like Billy said, now we're going to have possibly his blood on that suitcase, possibly his own blood at the crime scene. And then when we find out who he is, maybe we can find bloody clothing uh, where he lives, where he may have dumped uh, bloody clothing. So there's going to be intensive searches done, uh, intensive examination by the crime scene unit of the location where the body was discovered, as well as where the actual crime took place, in, which appears to be in that home. Uh, and uh, once we do narrow, on, uh, narrow down a suspect, we identify him, uh, we'll have all this other ammunition that we can place him at the scene. Again, Billy, you brought up the cell phone. Where's his cell phone? His cell phone could have been pinging at that exact location where the murder took place at the time that we believe it took place. So, again, uh, it doesn't sound like this is a stranger that uh, killed this woman. It sounds like someone known to her had access to the home. Like you said, no forced entry. And, again, all the very, very important things, the victimology and the perpology, as you stated those are going to be very important things that are being done in this case. Alicia B, police off the cuff. What would be some reasons the offender would move the body? Well, he wants to get his dirty deed as far away from him as he can. And by throwing her or moving her um, half a mile or a mile away uh, with that duffel bag, that's one way it's in his mind, really. He could have just fled out of there and left the body. But it's a part of his psychology that that uh, made him do that. This is a good, good question, Alicia B. That is a very good question. And again, it could be that he's uh, a relative or a friend of the family and he didn't want the child to see the body. You know, even though he's a murderer, he could have thoughts like that in his head. We don't know what the relationship is exactly, whether it's a friend, a relative. But again, things like that could be uh, part of it. Um, I guess we'll get a better picture of why he did that when they do, uh, you know, zero in on the suspect. But yeah, that's a great question. You know, Phil, uh, there could be twists and turns to this. Right now, we're just giving the our audience, we're talking about techniques of what should be done. It's almost there. There are checklists in homicide investigations. There's things that must be done, you know. And that's uh, that doesn't mean that's going to solve the case. Sometimes you have to also think outside the box. Has the husband and the 17-year-old son have been completely cleared? I, I'm not part of the investigation to know the inner workings of this. But one of the things when we talk about victimology is if we asked, we can't really ask the husband about his wife's friends and about what she does in her very, very private life, which he may not even know about. So who, who we would ask is her friends. 
Who is her best friend? Who are some of her inner circle? They'll know about if there is, is in fact, this handyman that she'd have an affair with. They'll know about him. They'll know about him by name. Who do you think the police would get the name from? In addition, her cell phone. Let's see her frequency of calls. Who's she calling all the time, all right? Who's calling her? Who's texting her? Who is she texting? All of those things. How about, you know, we, when we take a deeper, deeper dive, and I love to say this, we look into the finances. Sometimes finances say, oh, my God, why didn't I check this sooner? The answer just becomes apparent, but sometimes it doesn't. But we have to, I talk about the investigation, see my arms way out here. We want to start way out here and start focusing in and bringing that investigation and fine-tuning that investigation till we have the suspect. Absolutely, Billy. And I think that uh, it sounds very amateurish. What I mean by that is I don't think this is a, a well-thought-out plan, uh, you know, to kill somebody and stuff them into a suitcase and leave a trail of blood to where you uh, dump the body. It's obviously not very uh, professional in nature. I don't think it was well thought out. It sounds like a fit of rage, the, the violence, the, the violent nature of the, uh, of the killing, the rage. And uh, it may have been something that just uh, set off the person and uh, they didn't think it through. They didn't think it clearly. But I think that uh, there's going to be an arrest made in this case. I'm almost certain of it. Yeah, I think that, it, um, you know, let, let me just pull this off the screen and I'm going to put it back on there. Um, I think that this was is a crime of passion, and I'd yes. be very surprised if it, if it doesn't come back. Is that I'm going to play a little bit of a some file tape from the news and see what they have to say here. Investigators are now exploring the victim's relationship with several men. CBS 2's Kieran Dillon live in Forest Hills with that new information. Kieran. Maurice and Christine, this story has absolutely devastated this quiet community here in Forest Hills. We're actually outside of the victim's home where this remains an active investigation. Take a look behind me right now so you can see for yourself. Now, officers have been camped out outside of the home for days. New today, the NYPD is now offering a reward of $3,500 for anyone with information that leads to an arrest in connection to Orsoya Gall's death. Now, sources tell us investigators believe Gall was killed by someone she knew inside of her home here on Juno Street this weekend. We've just learned detectives are now delving deeper into the victim's relationship with several men. They are probing possible past romantic links to at least one individual based on her electronic communications with him. Exactly what happened to the mother of two remains a mystery, but sources tell us she went to a show at the Lincoln Center with female friends on Friday night. She returned home to Forest Hills and went to a bar. Gall's body was then found several hours later in a duffel bag a few blocks away from her home. She was suffering from more than 50 stab wounds. So, of course, as I mentioned, this story is just horrifying to neighbors here. We actually spoke to a family electrician today who dropped by to leave flowers and mourn. Here's what he had to say about what happened. Every time I work here, they treat me like family, you know. I, it's, it's, you know, <laughs> the very nice family. They're like, who would want to hurt her? She was a very, very nice lady. So police have yet to release any information about a possible motive for this attack. Again, they are asking anyone with any information to contact them. So there you go. One of the things that we suggested was that they, they look at her cell phone and they're saying there that she had some messages from uh, a certain individual. So they have someone who is, a, I believe, a suspect. And again, I won't use that person of interest term. I believe they have a, a potential suspect. I said, well, how, how about that, Phil? Is that okay? 
potential. I would say that, yeah, that, that, listen, that person of interest, it's a, a dressed up term that media people like to use. We know where it's going. Um, uh, Billy, you hit it right on the, the nail right on the head. The, the cell phone information is obviously leading to a person that they believe that they're zeroing in on, a possible love interest. And uh, I think it was a little bit out of character uh, when they talk about how the husband and the son was out checking the school. Uh, the, the college that he's going to go to. I know when we did uh, college tours with my children, my wife was right in there. And uh, I, maybe there was a reason for that. Maybe she wanted the husband to be away so she could have this uh, meeting or uh, a hookup with uh, an ex-lover or a current lover, whatever it was. So again, that's that's slightly suspect to me, not a major red flag, but I would think that, you know, uh, most college visits, a lot of time it's the whole family goes. Or, But I would think that... Uh, that might be a little bit of, uh, I would I would be asking the husband about that. Uh, how did it come to be that you went with your son to the uh, to the college visit? You know. You know, folks. Uh, this is police off the cuff, real crime stories. If you're not subscribed to us, please go on our YouTube, hit that subscribe button, give us a thumbs up, ring that bell, and if you want to support us, we have a Patreon, and there's three different levels. And if you want to become part of the police off the cuff. Real Crime Stories family, you can join us on our YouTube. You see the folks with the green font. They belong to our Police Off the Cuff YouTube family. And uh, there's five different levels of that. And I just want to thank all of our uh, folks in the chat, all of our channel members, all our Patreon members. Uh, Moonlight View, someone she knew, throwing the lead off by saying it was retaliation. Look, I'm not, I'm not, buying any of this retaliation thing. This is a crime of passion to me. There's no doubt to it. Uh, some of you folks in the chat had suggested a hit. Or this No hit guy is going to stab someone 60 times. Yeah. A hit guy is going to shoot you or stab you once and kill you. They're not going to stab you 60 times. Right. This is a crime of passion. And, you know, it's sort of like, and I, I, I hate to say this, but it's sort of like homicide investigation 101. You learn this right in the beginning, like, that's a crime. First of all, using a knife is a very personal way to kill somebody. And, you know, when someone stabs someone 58 or 60 times, and in this incident, there's a lot of evidence of defense wounds. When she's got stab wounds on her hands and her arms, trying to block the attack, you know, that that shows she's fighting for her life. And very much so, it's, it's almost, I would say, 90 to 100% that she knows the person involved in this attack. Billy, you're, you're really uh, drawing down on my uh, thinking on this as well. Uh, I think me and you are right in the same lane. Um, when you have that many stab wounds, it's showing tremendous anger, rage. Uh, like you said, if it was a, a person that was hired to kill her or a hit or something like that, it would be either a, a neck wound, one neck wound, a stab to the back uh, to, to puncture a lung, a stab in the chest to catch the heart. It wouldn't be all of these uh, these extensive wounds. Again, that text message, uh, that seemed like an afterthought. Uh, had a person got access to the phone and maybe, you know, usually the phones lock. They, they must have known the information to get into that phone. And that was just maybe an afterthought to throw off, investigators throw off the husband, maybe place fear into the husband. But this is very personal. This is extreme anger, extreme rage. I had a homicide uh, years back, uh, a similar uh, a stabbing homicide where there were extreme amounts, overkill, 
there was a, uh, the suspect had deep hatred for the person, deep, deep, deep hatred. And there was extensive uh, stab wounds to the chest. And then uh, post-mortem, uh, a cut across, across the throat, uh, sliced the person's throat. So again, that was an extremely violent, extremely anger-filled uh, homicide. That's what this sounds like to me. Uh, something set that person off, and it seems like they had extreme, extreme anger and rage towards the victim in this case. Folks, on the screen, there's a little bit of a uh, timeline. Friday, April 15th, uh, Gail goes out with friends and is spotted on camera. Saturday, April 16th, Gail returns home just after midnight. And of course, Gal is, uh, actually it's pronounced Gal is her last name. Uh, her first name's a little tough to pronounce. Also, lawyer, I think it's pronounced. Saturday, April 16th, around 4.30 a.m., this is we see the um, video of a man wheeling uh, the duffel bag. A mysterious figure is seen dragging a duffel bag down the sidewalk from Gal's home. And Saturday, April 16th at 8 a.m., a dog walker discovers uh, the duffel bag with the remains in, in the bag. I'm just going to play a bit of um, of this. and uh... Night of the crime. Katie? It is now day five in the search for Orshigal's killer, and the NYPD is stepping up its investigation, now offering a $3,500 reward for information leading to an arrest. Our police sources tell us that investigators are looking at several possible suspects, including someone who did work for the family and knew where they kept their spare key. The key questions in the murder of Orshigal remain a mystery. Who killed the 51-year-old mother of two and why? But we are starting to get a clearer picture of what transpired in the hours before her death. Police sources tell PIX11 News that Gall attended a show Friday night in Lincoln Center and then spent 45 minutes waiting in a bar for someone who never showed. Police say Gall eventually returned to her Juno Street home, where she was stabbed nearly 60 times in her basement early Saturday morning. Her killer reportedly stuffed her body in a hockey duffel bag, dumped it half a mile away, and sent a disturbing text to Gall's husband, who was out of town, saying, quote, your whole family is next. Surveillance video shows a shadowy figure dragging a rolling duffel down Juno Street Saturday morning. Sources say a trail of blood from the bag led police back to Gall's home. It also appears Gall knew her killer because investigators say there were no signs of forced entry. Neighbors remain stunned. I've lived here for 40 years, and um, we've never had anything like this happen. Horror. Absolutely horrifying. It's just, you don't expect something like that to happen here, and you don't expect that, you don't want it to happen anywhere, especially where you live. And it just, and I think it's like the gruesome details that keep coming out just really, really struck a, a chord. Our sources say Gall's husband is cooperating and even turned over his cell phone to investigators. We are also told that the suspect left behind a piece of evidence at the scene, which will hopefully help police catch Gall's killer. Adrian, back to you. So some interesting little tidbits uh, from the news there. Look, obviously there's a thing called, and we spoke about it, and probably on Duty Run's show with Ed Wallace, you hear this a lot more. It's called Low Card's Theory of Exchange. And that has to do with evidence exchange. When two bodies come in contact with, with each other, they, it's called exchange of evidence. And that's uh, him touching her, him touching him. There'll be an exchange of evidence, but they don't have him right now. So potentially the clothes he's wearing, he either threw out or, or washed. But there's a other good um, 
there's a good, good possibilities on her body. There could be his DNA based right. on the fact she was trying to defend herself. She could have his skin underneath her fingernails when she was trying to maybe scratch and defend herself. So that's when we talk about low cards theory of exchange. We may not find him right now and get the evidence he certainly would have on him from her, i.e. blood evidence, but we have we have her. And she could very potentially have his evidence, the exchange of evidence on her that will identify him. Absolutely, Billy. And they, uh, the reporter made mention there that there was evidence left behind that will implicate the suspect. Uh, we don't know if that's possibly his cell phone or some other piece of uh, personal article that belongs to him. It could be a bloody fingerprint. There's so many possibilities. Uh, but I do think that it sounds like she was lured into that basement and uh, maybe for a quick conversation and apparently turned very violent. And maybe that's why the son, who was probably home at the time, didn't hear it. He may have been in an upstairs area of the home. It sounds like between uh, sometime after midnight and, and that 4.30 in the morning video of uh, the suspect taking the body down the block, that that's when the murder occurred. Um, yeah, it, it sounds like they're zeroing in someone uh, that worked for this family, some type of a handyman or a, a, some type of a worker, and there may have been some type of relationship between her and this person, and uh, it just it, it turned extremely violent, obviously. You know, every once in a while, I'll, I'll refer to someone in the chat, and they corrected me, and they corrected me correctly. I, I said that it the figure wheeling the duffel bag down the street uh, was a man. And we don't know. You're right. You're very right. That could be a woman. I'm, I'm, what do they say when you assume you make an ass of you and me? So I'm, I was, I'm assuming it was a man. You're right. You're hundred percent right. I don't know exactly identify the person that said that, but could that be a woman? Absolutely. So shame on me. You're right. <laughs> Anything's possible at this point. That figure that we saw is not very clear. Uh, I'm leaning towards it looks like a male too, Billy. Uh, but again, we don't know. It's uh, it's going to be uh, figured out as this investigation rolls forward. Um, I'm very certain. I'm very confident uh, that the investigators are closing in on whoever it is. They may already have this person in custody as we speak, or, or you know, doing a lot of uh, background on that person and uh, keeping tabs on them. But I don't think it's going to be a long drawn out investigation before there's an arrest, it's, I would say arrest is imminent at this point. You know, one of the things, folks, that, uh, you know, and everyone gets nervous and everyone gets impatient. Why didn't the police make an arrest? Why didn't the police make an arrest? Sometimes the police have to wait till the evidence comes back. The other thing is cell phone evidence just doesn't, you don't, you know, subpoena AT&T and subpoena these phone carriers. And they're not saying, oh, the police are demanding this. And they give it back at their leisure, you know could take days, could take a week, you know? And a lot of these tests that we're talking about uh, of evidence, they sometimes can take weeks, days or weeks. You know, identifying blood should happen a little quicker these days. I remember we had a, a double murder in East Harlem in 2001, December 1st, 2001. I always remember that date. And we made the arrest in like about five or six days. About a month later, the blood of one of the perps was found in the crime scene. But, you know, we could have used that to ID him, but it didn't come. But it still helped in the case. It showed that he was in the apartment, although they they both confessed. But still, the, the, the evidence, the physical evidence, fiber evidence, blood evidence, DNA evidence, 
uh, hair, mitochondrial DNA, DNA, all of that stuff takes time. You know, one of the things or we I used to in homicide, I used to always count on my detectives was so good. Ah, bring him in. We'll get a confession, you know. And that was before we had the enough evidence to go forward if he if the guy clammed up. But I always and probably not the smartest thing, but it, they were so good that I said, just bring them in. We'll, we'll get them to talk. And they confess. And that's such, such strong and powerful evidence when someone confesses and you compare the confession with the evidence, the confession with the timeline, the confession, what the person who's confessing is telling you. Powerful, powerful evidence. Billy, I'm glad you're bringing that up because uh, there's another component to this whole story that we really haven't touched upon is that your conferral with the district attorney's office. You're going to bring forward uh, the district attorney into the case immediately. Uh, usually in Brooklyn, when I worked homicide cases, uh, district attorney's office would be notified as soon as uh, we responded to a homicide scene. Uh, not usually uh, immediately, like as soon as we got there, but we would gather some inf information and evidence. We would notify the district attorney's office. If there were witnesses that were present, district attorney's office would send the representative and assistant district attorney down to the scene to interview that person. So again, you're going to be confirmed with the DA's office and the DA's office is going to be saying, okay, do this, do that. Let's get this done uh, before they authorize an arrest. Now in Brooklyn, it was always uh, district attorney's office would authorize the arrest. So again, you're making a great point. A lot of times we didn't have a whole lot of evidence that we could say to the district attorney's office, this is why we want to arrest a person. Here's what we got. So then we would say it would be a judgment call. As you brought up, Billy, if you have good investigators, let's bring this person in and talk to him. Because now if we have a confession and we're still waiting on blood evidence or fibers or telephone information or video surveillance cameras and different things of that nature, uh, we have a confession. We're going to move forward with an arrest at that point. As long as, like you said, it matches up to the crime scene. We believe that this person has uh, pertinent information and they're giving it to us. They're making a confession, telling us uh, things that haven't been reported to the public. We know that this is the right person. So now we're going to make the arrest. And then uh, like not uh, not like on TV where things happen in an hour, you know, a 60 minute show, they uh, have all the information. They pick up the phone and they get uh, subpoenas for telephone records like that doesn't work that way. So now we will continue after we make the arrest to build the case, put all the evidence together. Like you said, Billy, we close in on the person. We uh, put all the nails into the coffin, so to speak. Absolutely. Mercy Kay, who was she with that night and who was she waiting for at the bar? Mercy Kay, that's a that very great question. And you know something? Her cell phone is going to tell the police a great deal of information because she potentially she's having a drink at the bar. She's texting or she's on her phone during that time. We're going to, they know who she was on the phone with. They know who maybe she was planning on meeting. And so those are the, those are the things and great suggestion. Those are the things that they know that we don't know. Betty Smith, Alicia B. Yup. I saw one article saying he was an ex handyman could have been a 20 plus year old. I think he looks young too. It was messy, messy, messy with him, even not thinking to avoid having blood leaking. Betty Smith, one of the things that the police department has, and uh, to the chagrin of many investigators sometimes, is a, a unit called Deputy Commissioner of Public Information. And they give out information, sometimes top secret information to the press, and sometimes that harms these cases. And they give them out too early sometimes because they want to be um, 
you know, clear with the press. They want to give, uh, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, they want to just be uh, open-minded and give the information to the press so that, uh, you know, potentially the press can help you also so that not everyone in this neighborhood is thinking there's uh, a serial killer around, that this may have been a very specific murder. So they give this information. The other thing is there's sometimes leaks from investigators, which also can harm the case. And on 100%. several occasions, the police department has disciplined people like that and actually subpoena, subpoenaed detectives' phones uh, to get the information to see who was talking to certain reporters. And I don't know if it actually helps the case to say, oh, we're looking for a handyman, you know, because now the police know who they're looking for. But I don't know if that specifically helps the case, because what if this guy turns out not to be the guy they're looking for? But it, it helps the um, it helps for the public. The public is really nervous now that there could be this uh, psychotic murderer uh, walking around in Forest Hills, Queens, New York. So it allays it allays their fears, and that could be one of the reasons. But it also can, can hurt the case, you know. And uh, I was never for giving a lot of the inside information to the press, but you see how much information is out there. It's a lot. Absolutely, Billy. And uh, you made the point about the deputy commissioner of public information. Those last two words, public information. There are certain things when you have a victim of a homicide, once that person is identified, that person's name becomes public information. The public has a right to know about a person being killed if there could be a threat to others in the area. That's why things like that, like the person's uh, name is given out. A location is given out. Uh, the public at large has the right to know certain things. Now, when you talk about that, they said they specifically targeted a handyman. Could that have been a slip or a leak by an investigator? Yes, absolutely. Could it have also been purposely done to see if this person is going to try and leave or, you know, maybe uh, come up with a, a, a fake alibi story when they do question him? That could be the angle too. Anything's possible. Again, I always like to keep, and I think Billy, you're the same way, keep things close to the vest. I don't want too much information out there. And again, you could never release everything because when you get the right person in the box and they start giving you information, you want to be like you said, you want to make sure you have the right person. So if that person starts telling you stuff that they could have read in a newspaper uh, and you know that there's other things and they're not telling you about it, you know that maybe you don't have the right guy. Exactly. Diane S., my question, if she met someone, did she and the perp enter the home at the same time? What else might be on the camera? Apparently, the house has a, a very extensive surveillance system and potentially the police could have video of uh, who entered and exited that house. Well, they obviously have a video of the person dragging that duffel bag up the street. Uh, someone, uh, Bando, uh, Bando Joy Zep 7, thank you. That was the word I was searching for, transparency. transparency. And I just couldn't think of it. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, the police uh, want to be transparent. I don't know why you have to be transparent if you're the police. The government should be transparent. They're not, but the police don't have to tell everyone everything they know. But it allays the fears of people that live in the neighborhood that, you know, they're not looking for this serial killer. They're not. It seems to be, look, I don't want to disparage the memory of Miss Miss Gall, you know, uh, but, you know, could she have been having an affair or multiple affairs? That's part of what we refer to when we started 
the show with of the victimology, studying the background of the victim. Who are her friends? Who's her best friends, first of all? Because your best friend usually knows all your business, all right? And your family may be a total surprise to them. That happened a lot of times with young teenage girls. Uh, We would ask the parents, does your daughter have a boyfriend? Oh, no, no, no. And then we would talk to a friend. She's got like 10 boyfriends, you know? And the parents knew absolutely nothing about it. In this case, the inst- talking to her friends, her best friend, her peripheral friends, they will know things that no one else in her family knows. So that's all part of victimology and the study of the victim, victim backgrounding, we call it. Another thing you'll hear people talk about is low risk, medium risk, and high risk of becoming a victim of a homicide. And what made her... Was was there some activity? Was there some risky behavior that put her in the high risk level of becoming a victim? And again, I'm not victim blaming, but as a homicide investigator, you have to look at every single possibility. Phil? Absolutely, Billy. And again, you have to look at every single possibility because you want to get justice for this victim, number one. Number two, the family deserves justice. Number three, you don't want to point the finger at the wrong person. It's funny. Last night, we had gone out to dinner at the Boca Raton Country Club, and there was a lot of us at dinner, and we just happened to be talking about different homicide cases. We spoke about this case, and the family was so intrigued by the amount of these violent murders that take place in the country, in, in our local area, as well as across the country. But again, the uh, the amount of them and then all of the different things that are done uh, to investigate and bring people to justice. And my cousin uh, made a point. My cousin Joe made a point. He said, you know, when you're talking about a murder, you have to be 100 percent that you have the right person in custody because there's nothing worse than sending an innocent person to jail. And I couldn't agree with him more. I've had cases where we were uh, zeroing in on a suspect and then we had to turn around and it wasn't the person that was uh, responsible for the crime and go in a different direction. And you cannot be reluctant to do that. That's very, very important. Uh, You know, there are times in investigation, specifically in homicide investigation, where you hit a dead end, what we call you go down that road and you hit a dead end. The information, the the evidence is not implicating the person that you think it is. And that's okay. Now you have to sometimes you have to start from square one. You have to back up and then you go down a different road or a different avenue. And, you know, if you're a good investigator, you will figure it out. You'll come to the right person. And uh, with all the evidence gathering that's done across uh, the investigation, you'll be able to get the right person and put them in jail. Well, let's take a quick commercial break. Joe Murray, attorney at law. Have you found yourself in a jam? Are you in need of legal counsel in the New York City area? Uh, do you need a victim's advocate? Well, Joe Murray is your man. He's not only an experienced trial attorney, he's also a 15-year member of the NYPD. He literally knows both sides of the fence. You could reach Joe at jmurray-law.com. His telephone number is 646-838-1702. Or you could email Joe at joe at jmurray-law.com. Joe's going to be subbing for me tonight. And I just hope he doesn't do too good of a job because I still want to be able to get back on this show. That's but, right. Uh, Joe's going to be a co-host tonight as we interview uh, Peter Forcelli, who's a uh, retired AD. ATF Deputy Assistant Director. So it should be a great show. John Beatty Law, 
www.jbdlaw.com. John Beatty is a renowned personal injury attorney. He's also a retired, uh, decorated NYPD sergeant. John comes from a proud NYPD and FDNY family. He was an active sergeant in Brooklyn North and supervised in the legal bureau. John is a proud member of the Honor Legion and the Blue Knights. John Beatty litigates across the country for seriously injured victims and has helped recover over $200 million for grieving families. Call John now for a free consultation. John Beatty, 917-797-9520. John Beatty Law, www.jbdlaw.com. We have all these attorneys that were former cops. It's uh, You can see they're real go-getters. Going to, to law school when you're a member of the service is a very difficult thing to do, but... I take my hat off to these guys, uh, unbelievable hard workers, and they become the best attorneys because they know both sides of the fence, you know. Literally, so yes, yes. Hey, Bill, I got to tip my hat to you that uh, you you completed your uh, your doctorate. Uh, was that? No, my master's degree while I was on the job. That was pretty hard, too. So that's how I know going for law school has got to be 10 times harder. Yeah, yeah. I I uh, I I know that you you I got like a call in between there I didn't hear you but did you you did it post job uh, you got no your no I went to, I went uh, back to school in two thousand and then nine eleven okay. hit and I went to John Jay John Jay almost like shut down after nine eleven right and it was really tough to finish that semester and then I I finished my master's in four years but the hard thing about going back to that I don't want to stay away from this case stray away from this case too much was I hadn't been to college in like 20-something years. Sure. So, so many things had changed, specifically the internet and Microsoft Word. You know, I was back when we were using typewriters and, you know, as you were, as a squad detective, we used typewriters and carbons. How ridiculous was that? Right? I, when I first got into investigations, I was using the uh, manual typewriters where you would just, you know, you, they would have the ribbon. So, and then eventually we, uh, we turned into the... Uh, the electric typewriters, and now everything's just on computer. Yeah, I'm going to play a little bit more of this, uh, the news report of it. Could you see the, the different way that the news covers and this? And Fox 5's Briella Tomasetti is live there in Forest Hills, Queens, with the very latest on this investigation. Briella, what can you tell us? Yeah, Dan, a couple of updates this morning. The New York Post says that cops want to question a former handyman who may have been romantically involved with 51-year-old Orsolia Gall. They say he may have known where to find a spare key, considering there were no signs here at all of a break-in. A killer is running around, just butchered someone yards away from our homes, and he's still at large. It's scary when, you know, you don't feel safe where you live. Neighbors are sleeping with one eye open as investigators try to zero in on the person who brutally murdered 51-year-old Orsolia Gall. Police are piecing together a timeline of the married mother of two's final hours before her body was dragged and dumped in a duffel bag just a few blocks away from her Forest Hills home. A major piece of evidence, this surveillance image showing an ominous figure dragging what appears to be a duffel bag down a sidewalk hours after Gall was killed. I found out when I was uh, watching uh, TV and my wife says, what happened here? The NYPD says Gall's body was discovered just after 8 o'clock Saturday morning on Metropolitan Avenue in Forest Park underneath the Jackie Robinson Parkway after a dog walker called 911. The blood trail led detectives right back to the family home on Juno Street. That's where they believe she was killed. 
Police have been knocking on neighbors' doors and combing for evidence over the past several days looking for leads. It definitely sounds like foul play was involved, and I'm so sad for the family. On Monday, a preliminary autopsy report released by the chief medical examiner's office revealed that Gall's death was a homicide caused by sharp force injuries of the neck. Police sources told the New York Post she had been stabbed nearly 60 times. I just think the violent death that, that she endured is a scary thing for a woman in the city. Neighbors say Gall's husband, Howard Klein, and older son were out of town over the weekend looking at colleges. Calls and texts to his cell phone went unanswered. Gall's 13-year-old son, who was reportedly upstairs sleeping during the gruesome murder, was briefly brought into custody where he was questioned and later released. She's an amazing person, and she's going to be missed from all of us that knew her. So, folks, one of the things, if you noticed the video we were just playing, uh, they were removing a computer, and that was the screen. I, I would imagine they have the hard drive. Because you, you don't, uh, you have to cast a wide net. You can't just assume uh, someone's not involved. You have to get the evidence that either includes or discludes somebody in the investigation. So they're covering all their bases. Do, does, does the police department right now, does Queen's homicide, does the precinct that is covering this murder scene, do they have positive direction? Are they going in the right direction? I believe they are. They're going where the evidence takes them, and that's the most important thing. There are investigations, there are homicide investigations where you have no clue. You don't have a direction. And you're, that's once you find the direction, you can aim the whole investigation toward that direction. And one other thing that's, uh, that's very scary in a homicide investigation is when you're going in one direction and evidence shows you you're going in the wrong direction. So you have to change direction right in the middle of an investigation. And that happens. And it's like you have to start all over. And believe me, the big bosses don't like that. They get all, they pull out whatever hair they have left on their head when that happens. They're like, what do you mean we went in the wrong direction? Well, we were going where the evidence took us, but guess what? The evidence is now showing us we were going in the wrong direction. And uh, I've seen bosses uh, almost become suicidal when they hear that. <laughs> you know, Billy, uh, again, I want to restate, it's not about victim blaming or disparaging the victim in this case, but the facts are the facts. Whatever... Uh, the investigators uncover in the early stages of the investigation. Uh, that's the direction that they're going to go in. Like you said, sometimes the direction could be wrong, and then you refocus re, uh, the investigation in another direction. But it looks like it's been stated several times through the media that they're looking for a person of interest that they're calling uh, an ex-handyman uh, may have been romantically involved with the victim in this case. Again, I just want to restate it again. It's not about disparaging her or muddying up her name, uh, but the facts are the facts. Uh, obviously, whatever she was doing in her personal life, she did not deserve to be stabbed 60 times. But uh, things that uh, took place in her life, uh, in her personal life, uh, you know, maybe having an affair and trying to break it off or whatever the case may be, uh, something caused a person uh, to rage against her and to, to stamp her 60 times and kill her. So the facts are just the facts. We don't, uh, you know, make the facts. We just investigate them. That's for sure. Deborah uh, Barron, maybe texts were meant to throw law enforcement off. Red herring. Well, we know someone sent her husband a text uh, from her cell phone. 
I mean, that's pretty strong evidence. I mean, how, A, if she was dead at that point, how did he have her cell phone? So sort of indicates that he must have somehow uh, been involved in this. And one of the things that, again, we say it all the time is we're not privy to all the information that the detectives have at their disposal right now. I'm sure they're focused, laser-focused on someone right now. And they're putting all the evidence together. That, you know, people sometimes think, too, that, oh, once you get someone focused or once you arrest someone, oh, the case is over. No, you got to keep working the case. And that's when you become concerned with, and you should become concerned with this minute one, is how is this case going to be tried if it goes to trial? So you have to be constantly from minute one preparing the case as if it's going to go to trial and cross your, Dotting your eyes and cross your eyes. That's right. I think we say that ad nauseum. You're always saying we got to cross the T's and dot the I's, and that's for sure. Um, well, when you're up against a, a, a good defense attorney and they're critiquing your investigation, you want those do uh, I's dotted and those T's crossed. And and any experienced investigator is going to do the right thing and do their uh, due diligence. And uh, one quick thing, you know, in the NYPD, we have the luxury of having a uh, a team of investigators. This is not one or two detectives working on this case. This is a lot of people, and we have some great talent within the NYPD. We have great resources. So uh, a lot is being done on this case. Like you said, we don't have the case folder in front of us. We're not reviewing it to say, well, this was done or that was done. These are the things that the avenues that we would go down, the things that we would do. But I'm sure that uh, there's a lot of hard work going into this investigation there is going to be justice brought for this woman and for her family. I'm certain of it. Absolutely. Diane S., it's mind-boggling to hear Bill and Phil, the amount of time, insight, intelligence, energy, not to mention what it does to uh, law enforcement on an emotional level. I truly admire you both and all heroes that care. Thank you, Diane S. That's very kind of you to say that. But I you know, I agree with you. You know, this isn't um, the type of uh, work that anyone can do. You know, it, it does take a toll on you. Uh, takes a toll on you maybe years later, you know. Uh, Holly Chick, I love your name. Hiya, Bill and Phil. I had to read that out. Good to see you, Holly Chick. Um, Alicia B., um, it's difficult to discuss situations like this respectfully. Great job for keeping it respectful at Police Off the Cuff. You know, we try to keep it as respectful as possible. However, we have to deal in reality. And homicide investigation is a hard, hard, ugly reality. And, you know, we all understand the human condition. We understand that people have affairs. We understand that people have other relationships outside their marriages, and we can't ignore it because we're afraid to disparage someone's memory. We have to look into every potential possibility. Uh, drunken Sailor. <laughs> I don't know if I can take you seriously with that name, but I'm going to read what you wrote. Suspect most likely throwing investigators off, possibly escape, flew out of the country. I don't think so. I think this guy's still in Queens. <laughs> yeah, that, that's my opinion too. But Bill, I want to make a quick comment about the comment that Diane made, the first comment that you put up. Um, you know, as an investigator, this is how I felt that I'm sure that uh, you'll feel the same way and most investigators that are investigating a homicide feel. You have an obligation once that uh, responsibility has been placed on Anybody that's involved in the case that you're investigating a murder, you're going to have to speak for that dead person. You're going to try and get justice for that dead person. So you have that weight on your shoulders, specifically 
the, the lead detective, the detective who's assigned to the case, he has that obligation. And that's not something that I ever took lightly. Now, I have that on my shoulders, the weight of that. I'm assigned to the case. I have to provide justice for that person. So the obligation is to provide justice and get the right person and do the best thing that you can do, the best job that you can do to bring justice and bring that person to justice and uh don't forget, uh, it's not an easy thing to do to testify in open court at a trial. It's very difficult. But if you have all your ducks in a row and you did your investigation properly and you did your due diligence, uh, it's not going to be that hard to, uh, you know, come up with a conviction on uh, a perpetrator on a, on a very important case like this. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the video on the screen of the uh, person pulling uh that uh, i like to go back a little bit the person pulling that duffel bag it appears that it was it was on wheels and you could see the person appears to be a bit small not a large person you know and then there's of course a soya gal but you know by all um she seemed to be loved by a lot of the people in the community of course the community gets upset when anything like this occurs but um Look, I think again we're talking about a lot of things that we don't, we're not privy to. We're not privy to the direction. Uh, there seems to be some smoking gun type evidence. Uh, yeah, Tom Cusinelli, afternoon, gents, jumped on late. It was, Tom's an attorney, a retired NYPD captain. Good to see you, Tom. Lieutenant Peter Pranzo, always great to see you in the chat. Marie Green, uh, sale of possible if hired. <laughs> I like the drunken sailor. Um, the victim is someone's. Yeah, absolutely. We, we're trying to treat the victim with as much uh, respect as we possibly can. Um, Betty Smith, we don't know if she was having an affair or not. We don't know anything about their marriage. If he was having affairs on the side too, if it was an open marriage, if the husband treated her badly. Betty Smith, you're right, but the detectives do know. And the investigators know what her life was about. And as I explained early on, in the show, that's why we do what's called a victimology, to learn as much as we possibly can about the lifestyle of the victim. And as I said, I repeated, we're not looking to do victim blaming, but we're not here to moralize. We're here to solve a murder, you know, and I'm not specifically talking about Phil and I. We had our days of solving murders. Now we're telling you what the police do to attempt to solve this murder. Absolutely, Billy. And um, like you said in the very open of the show, we want to take all the information and narrow it down and bring it in and closer until we have enough to drop the hammer on the suspect. I don't think it'll be long. As I said earlier, arrest is imminent. Um, I really feel for this family. They lost uh, a wife, a mother. Uh, you know, I don't know what the extended family is, relatives, but uh Justice is going to be served in this case. Unfortunately, she was murdered. But now the only thing that's left is to bring the person responsible in uh, arrest and bring justice to that person. Joe Busto, several landmarks are in the pick, so it should be simple to determine the height of the suspect dragging the duffel bag. You know, Joe, that's a great point. And one of the things that I, I just feel, and again, if you try to describe to other people what does it look like, for some reason, this guy looks very small, and he looks young to me. He does. Yeah. And again, oh, again, I just assumed that it's a male. We don't know that. But by the gait, the way the person moves, 
to me, it appears to be a male. But again, I, I can't prove that by looking at that footage. But uh, yeah, a lot of good uh, things you can get from, a you know, they, as they say, a picture is worth a thousand words. I'm sure that there's going to be a multitude of video, Billy. As you know, today in 2022, just about everyone has video cameras on their home. That's a residential area. There could possibly be even uh, where the body was dumped, traffic cameras. Uh, there's going to be a lot of uh, video surveillance on this case. They uh, put out that snippet because that gives a good indication of the person. Like you said, uh, it's an educated guess or it's an opinion. It looks like a person may possibly in their 20s looks like a young person. It does look like a male. It doesn't look like the person is heavy. They look like a slender build. They also look like they're not very tall. So I don't think that those are very outlandish statements to make. It's an opinion. It's an educated guess. But uh, there's probably a lot more that a video that we don't see. We don't have privilege to see right now. But they put out that snippet because, again, someone might recognize a person very close to the perpetrator might recognize them and say, wait a second, that's Joe Blow from Avenue Owen. Call in a lead, you know, call in a tip. And uh, again, uh, if that person does that. And how do you find Joe Blow from Avenue O? That's a tough one. Well, first thing you got to do is you got to go to Avenue O and look for Joe Blow. That's true. Betty Smith, maybe she wasn't having an affair, but the ex-handyman texted her and said he was out of jail and wanted to talk to her. She thought she'd meet him at the bar, but he still had a key met her at a house betty smith anything is possible and of we course. don't know but you know it's the job of investigators to narrow down the possibilities and to go on where the evidence leads them but very you know i'm not discounting anything you said um another one there was just another um i just lost that little piece of chat there uh brad r immature i've been saying where's his car and where was he going with that bag well, he I mean, he dumped the bag. He wasn't going anywhere. He dumped it. He wanted, for some reason, he wanted in his the body removed psyche, he wanted the body away from the house, you know, yeah. away from his dirty deed, you know. Maybe so, he thought they weren't going to go into the basement for an extended period of time, and if the body was removed, it wouldn't decay and, and smell or whatever. You know, we don't know what that person was thinking. I'm sure if they do get a, a, a confession out of the person, he'll explain that. But uh, again, uh, you know, it was dark. It was at night. Maybe he didn't realize that the blood was dripping from the suitcase and he left the trail that took the police right back to uh, the location. And again, maybe he didn't think that uh, where, where he dumped the body, that it was going to be found so quickly. He didn't think it out. Uh, I'm saying he, the person didn't think it out very clearly. Obviously it would sound like it was uh, instantaneous, a rage that caused the the person to commit the homicide, and then uh, it wasn't thought through very clearly, and he uh, exited the home with the body and dumped it a few blocks away. You know, folks, there's a million possibilities. I know now folks are bringing up a car. How do we know? We don't know. We don't know. We absolutely yeah. don't know how the killer got there. We do not know. Could he have parked his car several blocks away and ran to his car? Yeah, there's a million possibilities, but we're not conducting this investigation. We're just trying to give our expertise and tell you what the investigators will be looking for. And If he did have a car and the, the bag is leaking blood and he knows it, maybe that's why he didn't want to put it in the car. But again, like you said, Billy, we don't know what we don't know. Obviously, the internal part of the investigation, they will know the answer to these questions. 100%. Uh, you know, Phil, we're at about an hour and seven, I think. Folks, we're going to stay with this case uh, till it's solved. But tonight I have... Uh, I'm doing a show at 9 p.m. tonight and co-host the very popular 
the very handsome, the very tough former police officer, Joe Murray, former boxer, Joe Murray. He's going to be the co-host. Good man. And um, we're interviewing Peter Forcelli, who is a retired ATF. Well, he was also on this job. He started out in housing, and he was a uh, housing homicide, and then he was Bronx homicide. And then he left this job, and he became a big shot with the ATF. That's uh, the alcohol, tobacco, and firearms. He's a retired deputy assistant director. And I want to ask him a bunch of questions because all we're hearing about lately is the iron pipeline and ghost guns. And I want to hear his opinion. He actually testified uh, in that case, Fast and Furious, where the government had egg all over their face. So he'll be a very, very, very interesting guest. So if you're not doing anything tonight at 9 p.m., please tune in. It's going to be a fantastic show. And look, I miss Phil. He's in Florida. He's having a good time. He's got a break from stirring that big pot of sauce he stirs all the time at his house. He's got a little sun and sand. He looks healthy, doesn't he? But I, I pulled him in today. I pulled him in today to do the show. He's using his cell phone in his hotel room. I think he did a great job. So, Philly, uh, I guess you should have final words. Final words. Uh, let me just see if I can show you guys from my room. I don't know if you guys are going to be able to see this. but that, Can you see that, Philly? Is that Yes. Okay. It looks beautiful. Yeah, that, that we're down by uh, we're down by the ocean in Deerfield. Um, we're actually leaving. Uh, we're going to a different part of Florida tomorrow. Uh, actually, maybe later today we're leaving. But uh, uh, in in the early part of the show, uh, I when we first came on, I was talking about my friend Joe Ponzi that passed away. Uh, this is a guy that uh, gave his life. He died from 9-11 related cancer, from exposure to ground zero. It's unfortunate that uh, people are still sick and dying from that day, that horrible day tw over 20 years ago. Uh, to me, he's a hero. He's a true, uh, great human being. He, uh, he was a, a great friend. I'm going to miss him dearly. Uh, and I just, I'm looking forward to doing the tribute show on Joe. Uh, with regard to this case that we talked about today, uh, I'm very confident that there's going to be an arrest made. And uh, it's just a matter of time at this point. And uh, I'm glad that I got to do it, Billy. I was getting a little bit of uh, withdrawal. <laughs> yeah, you're going through a police off the cuff, real crime story Absolutely. withdrawal. <laughs> Absolutely. hundred percent. And uh, so again, uh, I'll be back uh, probably the end of the week and uh, we'll get right back into it. And uh, looking forward to tonight's show, Billy. I think that's going to be a good one with Joe. Uh, you guys uh, will probably uh, do a great show tonight. Uh, rest in peace, Joe Ponzi. God bless. Thank you, Phil. And thanks, folks. Thank you so much for um, watching today. And uh, God bless Joe Ponzi. And uh, if you're around tonight at 9 p.m., come on. I'm, I'm going to have a great show tonight. God bless everyone. Stay safe. One episode, just ain't enough.